This episode of Full Armor Radio is brought to you by CR101 Radio Network. CR101 Radio Network is a Christian reconstruction internet radio station that hosts and broadcasts lectures, sermons, and podcasts 24-7. We're also brought to you by GCS Apprenticeship Program, which is dedicated to training the next generation of Christian teachers so they can own and operate successful and profitable Christian schools. You can learn more at cr101radio.com and gcsapprenticeship.com. And now to the show. John O'Rourke. <clears throat> you have to pardon my voice. I'm just getting over a little bit of a, of a cold or something. Um, but yeah, so today, when we get into it, we want to talk about um, some apologetic issues. Um, and particularly, I wanted to talk about um, people's, people's worldviews and presuppositions um, being the... Um, interpretative, interpretative, interpretative force um, when it comes to analyzing data. Um, in other, let me break that down. In other words, people's presuppositions are the deciding factor for what they believe. Um, people's presuppositions are how they interpret evidences, and. Um, it's really, really important for us to understand if we're going to do effective biblical apologetics, you know, presuppositional apologetics, is to understand the Bible teaches us that people interpret things based upon their presuppositions, based upon their worldview. So, you know, first things first, what is a, what is a presupposition? Well, a presupposition is your most basic assumption about what is real, your most basic assumption about reality, um, your presuppositions are the building blocks of your worldview. They make up your worldview. <coughs> uh, a worldview is a network of a bunch of different presuppositions that somebody has. Um, and people have different presuppositions about reality. You know, somebody may have a presupposition that there is no God, right? They, they would presuppose that there's no such thing as God. So... When they look at you know the intricacy of the human eye, for example, they do not interpret the intricacy as being designed, right? They don't interpret that the intricacy of the human eye as as pointing to a god designer. Um, so that's one example. While you know somebody from a Christian worldview would look at the intricacy of the human eye and say, "Wow, look at the wisdom of God and His creation and making everything work together," right? But it all comes down to your presuppositions because both people are looking at the human eye, the same data point, but they come away with different interpretations. And that's because of their presuppositions. So um, I want to point out, I want to look at a few texts of scripture today, that the Bible teaches this very thing, that there are people will interpret things based upon their presuppositions. In other words, based upon you know their worldview commitments. Um, so what's the main point here? Why do I want to go through this? Um, is that there are, there's no such thing as just brute facts. And what I mean by that, and the way that I use that, using that term right now, 
it's not as though, you know, we all have the same facts and we all agree on the facts. It's just, you know, who has more facts for their side, right? That's not really how it is. We're looking at, in, in reality, you're looking at the same world and same parts of the world, but you come away with different interpretations because it's not a matter of, um, it's not a matter of having more evidence. It's a matter of interpreting the evidence correctly. Now, from a Christian worldview, I'm saying that the Christian worldview can make sense of, you know, of evidence and make sense of data, um, like the human eye and, and all sorts of things, laws of logic and, um, you know, uniformity in nature, that there's laws of science, that it can make sense of ethics, it can, we can make sense of, you know, why the world functions the way that it does um, in our worldview. I'm saying it's not because we we pile up the facts on our side. It's because we have a worldview that is true. Uh, the Christian worldview is true, and it can make sense of the world, while unbelieving worldviews cannot make sense of the world rationally. Um, so before I you know go off on too much of that, let's just let's just break it down. The point is is that we're dealing with competing worldviews. We're dealing with people with you know different presuppositions. So I'm going to look at a few a few passages of scripture. Um, the first one, it's one that's really really important, is this parable that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. Here, I'm reading from the uh, New American Standard version. So here's the parable, and I want you to pick up a very important point at the very end of the parable. So here it is, Luke 16:19. Uh, now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that, they, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. This is really the key part. So Abraham says, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now, this is a really important passage that those who endeavor to do apologetics need to take really seriously. Those last three verses, or four verses, the rich man says, okay, if there's no possibility of me being comforted, please send Lazarus back from the dead 
so that he may warn my brothers that they'll repent and, and they won't go to, go to hell. Abraham, in this parable, his response is, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the Bible. Let them hear the Bible. And the rich man says, well, no, no, no. If somebody goes back from the dead, then they'll definitely believe. They'll repent. And Abraham says, no, actually they won't. If they don't listen to the Bible, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Now, the reason this is so important is that, sadly, many apologists think that if you can simply prove that Jesus rose from the dead, then people would say, well, he rose from the dead. I guess that proves everything about Christianity. I guess that proves that Jesus is God and everything he says is true. The issue is, is that this text is saying quite the opposite. He says, even if somebody rises from the dead, they won't repent if they don't listen to the Bible first. In other words, if you don't presuppose the truth of Moses and the prophets, if you don't presuppose the truth of the Bible, you won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. See how, um, how much of someone's presuppositions are their deciding factor for what they will believe. Okay? It all comes down to what your presuppositions are. So the point here is that demonstrating this, that somebody rose from the dead, that Jesus rose from the dead, is not um, going to prove the Christian worldview in and of itself. I want to I show um, here a, a section here from an, an article by Greg Bonson on this. I think this is excellent. I just want to walk through. I copied and pasted this. I'm working on a apologetics course that I'm teaching right now. And um, I wanted to include this because I thought this was so good. Um, this is from Greg Bonson's um, little essay called The Impro Impropriety of Evidentially Arguing for the Resurrection. So he's saying, you know, arguing for Jesus's resurrection is not the end-all be-all of apologetics um, and it is not um, an ultimate proof for the Christian worldview. Now, I, this is written in the middle of the article, so this is an excerpt from it, but really important stuff here. I'm just going to read it and make some comments when I want to. Here's what he says. Now, even if the above considerations were put aside for a moment, we would still have to see that the evidential argument for Christ's resurrection is unsuitable as the crux of our apologetic. Okay. Under cross-examination, most of the considerations brought forth by evidentialists can be dismissed as overstated, gratuitous, or inconclusive. There is little, if any, basis for holding to a resurrection as probably taking place in the past and arguing that the witnesses are probably reliable is a completely different matter. It is also unsuitable for the intended aim of the argument, for the very place that the witnesses could be mistaken, deceptive, or distorted might be the very event, the very event in question. So what he's saying here basically is that people may say, well, you know, there's all these witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. We have these, go these four Gospels um, where they, you know, say that they're eyewitnesses to Jesus or spoke to eyewitnesses or etc. People say, well, this is, you know, decades after the, the event. How do we know that they were remembering this uh, correctly? And ultimately what the answer oftentimes is, is, well, Jesus gave them the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave them the Holy Spirit so that they would remember. Now, of course, what does that presuppose? That already assumes that Jesus is God, which is the very thing you're really supposed to be proving, so it begs the question. 
you're saying that Jesus, um, the argument is that the resurrection proves that Jesus is God. And you say, oh, how do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, because his disciples said so. How do we know that they are remembering correctly? Because Jesus gave them the Holy Spirit. Well, that already assumes that Jesus is God and is able to give the Holy Spirit, right? Um, <coughs> so anyway, there's all sorts of arguments done with that, but that's not the main point here. Um, he had already kind of addressed, I think if I remember correctly, he addressed um, some of the arguments made by evidentialist apologists for the resurrection. So he's kind of summing up here. So he goes on, he says, it's also, um, sorry, but even, right here, but even putting aside these things, the evidentialists may prove the historical resurrection of Christ, but he proves that it is simply an isolated and uninterpreted freak event in the contingent universe. So in other words, if you're not going to be a presuppositionalist and, and you know, make sure that you maintain the Christian worldview in your argumentation, and instead, you, you opt to try to have a, a so-called neutral approach while you're dealing with this. And it just all comes down to human reason um, and dealing with the facts apart from, you know, our worldviews interpreting those evidences. If you're going to try to pull that card, he's saying if all, if all you can do is just by um, some reasoning and by some maybe some historical argumentation that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. He's saying all you've done is demonstrated that some really weird thing happened once, that some guy who was dead came back to life. He's saying that's all you've proven. He says, he goes on, he says, he is still stranded on the far side of Lessing's ditch, i.e. the skeptic can grant that Christ arose and then simply ask what that odd ancient fact has to do with his own present life and experience. So you see his point? Saying if Jesus rose from the dead, it's like, okay, great. So some guy named Jesus rose from the dead. What does that have to do with anything? See, it all comes back to what? The Bible. Do you believe Moses and the prophets? Right? If you don't start with believing God's word, then you're not, this is not going to make a difference. Which is exactly what Jesus said in his parable. If they do not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. Bonson goes on, the fact that Christ rose from the dead does not prove anything within the neutral framework of an evidentialist argument. You see, an evidentialist argument, as I was trying to say before, it's not saying, hey, it's a battle of competing worldviews in the sense that I'm presupposing the Christian worldview, and if you don't presuppose the Christian worldview, you're reduced to foolishness. Instead, saying, hey, we, we all live in this world, and we're going to see if I have facts on my side that beat out or outweigh the facts on your side, right? And you kind of have this balancing on the scales and the evidentialist is just trying to show that the, uh, the Christian side has more facts on its side, okay? Now, just a side note, when I say the evidentialist, I know that that's a bit broad and simplistic because there's a lots of different, lots of different approaches to evidentialist apologetics. So I am giving a broad brushed view. So if you are an evidentialist, I don't mean to be simplistic or to, but there are people who, who do argue this way. Um, and that's what we're addressing um, here. So <coughs> the point is, is that from a strictly evidentialist apologetic viewpoint, um, the main one of the main arguments is that Jesus rose from the dead, and we can demonstrate that because you know people don't um, people don't die for things that um, 
that they know are false. So they say, well, the disciples went around and said that this was true. Um, so, you know, and they died for it. So they must have believed it was true at the very least, right? <laughs> Their eyewitnesses, et cetera, et cetera. But the person, the unbeliever can always come back and say, how do we know that Jesus actually um, lived and died and um, rose again? The, just because some people said that that happened, um, how do we know that they're telling the truth or how do we know that they are um, understanding it accurately? Uh, how do you know that they're remembering it accurately or weren't just confused or whatever, right? So anyway, he goes on. <coughs> Christ's resurrection does not entail his deity just as our future resurrection does not entail our divinity. What's he saying there? The Bible teaches that everybody will be raised from the dead on the last day, that God will raise all people and separate them out between the sheep and the goats right, for final judgment. He's saying our rising from the dead doesn't make us God, does it? So Jesus rising from the dead doesn't by itself, just all by itself, apart from the Bible's testimony about it, does not demonstrate that he is God. He goes on and says, And one could argue that the first person to rise from the dead is God, one could, sorry, one could not argue that the first person to rise from the dead is God, for on that basis, Lazarus would have been greater, would have a greater claim to deity than Christ, right? The Lazarus rose from the dead. Um, that doesn't mean that he is God. Even further back, Elijah in um, 1 Kings 17, he raised a widow's son from the dead, right? Does that mean that that son is God? Well, people say, well, look, with Lazarus, Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. So that proves that Jesus is God. Okay, yeah, um, he did. But Elijah raised the widow's son from the dead. So does that mean Elijah is God? Just by itself, the rising from the dead or raising someone else from the dead does not make you uh, divine or demonstrate that you are God. Apart from the whole testimony of Scripture, which is the point here. The evidentialist may prove the... Uh, the evidentialist may prove the resurrection of Jesus, but until he proves every other point of Christianity, the resurrection is an isolated, irrelevant, quote-unquote, brute fact, which is no aid to our apologetical efforts. That's, that's the key right here. The evidentialist may prove the resurrection of the dead, but if you don't, unless you prove all of the rest of Christianity, it doesn't make a difference. And that's exactly what Jesus is getting at, is when... He's saying somebody may rise from the dead, but they will not believe unless they are unless they believe the Bible, which I mean all of the testimony of God's word. Only within the system of Christian logic does the resurrection of Christ have meaning and the implication. And that system of logical entailment and premises can only be used on a presuppositional basis. You do not argue into it. So in other words, you have to first presuppose the Bible as being true in God's word in order for the resurrection to have any, uh, make any sense and, and fit into, to have an implication for, you know, what's, what's uh, implication for our lives in the future and things like that. The resurrection is very important uh, doctrinally, but that on, the resurrection of Jesus only makes sense if you presuppose the Bible's truth as God's word, right? Now remember, the presuppositional argument is not simply, hey, just believe it. The argument is that unless you presuppose the Bible, you're reduced to foolishness and absurdity in your thinking. An unbelieving worldview cannot make sense out of anything unless they first, you know, unless they abandon their unbelieving worldview and presuppose, you know, the Bible and, and adopt the Christian worldview. 
So Christianity is true due to the impossibility of the contrary. If you reject Christianity, you're reduced to irrationality and absurdity. That's the, that's the idea. So in terms of the evidentialist approach to the unbeliever, that skeptic can accept the resurrection without flinching, for the resurrection is simply a random fact until a Christian foundation has been placed under it. Super important. So if you just have a resurrection apart from the Bible's interpretation of it, it doesn't really mean anything. Furthermore, in the past, men like Ramaris and Paulus have utilized the same enlightened scientific methodology as that of evidentialism and have concluded that Christ could not have rose from the dead. It is terribly unwise for the Christian to stake his apologetic on the shifting sands of quote-unquote scientific scholarship. Scripture itself should be enough to dissuade a person from depending upon evidential arguments for Christ's resurrection. God's word makes clear that man's rebellion against the truth is morally, not intellectually rooted. That's a very crucial point. Saying, why does man disbelieve God in the Bible? Not because um, he lacks evidence or lacks facts. It's because he has a moral axe to grind. He's, in, he's morally in rebellion against God. That's the reason. Not because he... It's not because there's not enough evidence or enough reasons. It's because Romans 1.18, um, he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, right? So he says, the sinner needs a changed heart and spiritually opened eyes, not more facts and reasons. That's ultimately true. Ultimately, um, if somebody's really going to presuppose the Bible, that's something that the Holy Spirit's going to enable them to do. Now, God uses apologetics as a means to that. So we're not saying that apologetics and evangelism is unnecessary. It's something that God uses as a means by which he does give people open new eyes you know, to see. But nevertheless, um, the point is that just stacking up evidences, the unbeliever is going to interpret that evidence through his own unbelieving worldview. So when he says, okay, he says, okay, what if the unbeliever says, okay, I grant that this guy, Jesus, he existed, he was crucified, and he rose from the dead. He's saying, he could say, all those things may be true. It does not mean that the Bible is God's word or that God exists. He says, sometimes weird things happen that we don't understand. There's a lot of things that we're, we're still learning, and someday we'll probably figure out why that very rarely happens where somebody who's been dead for a few days comes back. But ultimately... It's, um, you know, it doesn't prove the Christian worldview. And by itself, that's, that's true. It all comes down to whether you believe God's word, believe the Bible as God's word or not. So he goes on. Moreover, proving the resurrection as a historical fact would have no effect as far as engendering belief in God's word. Right? That's, what, that's exactly what we read in Luke. The only tool an apology needs is the word of God, for the sinner will either presuppose its truth and find Christianity to be co coherent and convincing, given his spiritual condition and past experience, or he will reject it and never be able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And he quotes the text, Luke 16, 31. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. God's word is sufficient in giving the sinner the necessary witness, which can lead him to conversion. If he will not hear the inspired word of God, neither will he be moved by a human argument for the resurrection. And that's exactly really what Jesus is saying. A proof of the resurrection is certainly no more powerful than the living and bodily presence of the resurrected Savior before one's own eyes. Yet we learn from Matthew 28, 17, that even some of the 11 disciples of Christ doubted while in his resurrected presence. 
It's right before the, the Great Commission. I'll point that out real quick. I'll hop over to, to that text just to show it. Let's see, Matthew 28. Here it is. All right, Matthew 28, 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And then Jesus gives them the, um, the Great Commission. Let me go and show that to you, sorry. Right here, verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. All right. Anyway, back to this. So even some of them <coughs> doubted right when they saw him face to face. When one is not ready to submit to God's self-attesting word, no amount of evidence can persuade him, even compelling evidence for Christ's resurrection. For example, like him standing right in front of you. When Christ met with two travelers on the road to Emmaus and found them doubtful about the resurrection, he rebuked them for being slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. That's Luke 24, 25, that's right. Rather than offering them compelling evidence for the resurrection by immediately opening their eyes to recognize him, he made their hearts burn within them by expounding to them the scriptures. So the point here is to recognize that scripture is the ultimate you know, thing you must presuppose in order for um, you to... For, or, sorry. Presupposing scripture is necessary in order for you to correctly interpret anything, um, including miracles like Jesus being you know, risen from the dead. Um, even even something as miraculous and as spectacular as that is only correct, correctly understood um, if you already presuppose a Christian worldview. And that's really what, what, again, what the parable is saying, is that if somebody doesn't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if somebody rises from the dead. So let me continue on here. So just as a couple more examples of presuppositions guiding people's understanding, um, we have here in Acts 26, this is an interesting um, example. Oopsie. Let me open this up again. Acts 26. And this is Paul. He has made his defense before Festus. And our verses are 24 to uh, <coughs> 25. Paul made this big defense um, talking about how he was converted and, and his backstory and what he's been preaching and things like that. And he says this, while Paul was saying, this is verse 24, while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. So Paul, he, Paul, Paul was a very well-educated person, um, a, you know, somebody who was very in intelligent. And Festus knew that. He knew that. So his interpretation, though, of all these things that, that Paul had proclaimed, he tells his backstory, his, 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 um, his conversion, how Jesus resurrected Jesus, met him on the road, um, and opened his eyes and all of that. And then 
he's talking about how he's proclaiming um, the gospel and how people opposed him, etc. And Festus jumps in there and says, Paul, you're crazy. All of your, all this studying and learning that you've done is driving you crazy. Instead of saying, well, Paul, you're a very intelligent man and you, and, and, um, you make very you know, well-reasoned arguments, um, he says, the only thing I can say is, and I, he's saying, I can't say you're stupid, but I, I think that what happened is that you've gone insane. <laughs> you're so smart that you've gone insane. And Paul says, I'm not insane. I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Fest says, I utter words of sober truth. He's saying, I've given you good arguments. I've given you rational words here. Um, but Festus's interpretation is instead, you know what? No, Paul must just be crazy. Um, so he, pre- he, he, since he does not presuppose the truth of these things, his interpretation of the very intelligent Paul is that Paul is just losing his mind from all the learning that he has done. Another good example, um, this one deals with miracles as well is uh, Acts 28, when Paul, um, when they're shipwrecked, and they land, and there's natives here. So, verse 2, The natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had, had set in, and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So their, their, their worldview there is dictating to them, Okay, well, here's a guy who came off of a shipwreck who was a prisoner. He must be some murderer because um, he's going to get killed by this poisonous viper. Right? So they have some understanding of you know, maybe what people would call you know, karma or something like that. But then this happens, verse 5. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Okay? So here's this miraculous thing that Paul gets bitten by a poisonous snake but doesn't suffer any harm from it. And... They first think, oh, he's going to die. He must be a murderer. And then they realize he doesn't die. And they say, oh, he's a god. Do they say, wow, you know what? This is miraculous. He must be um, from Yahweh, the only true and living God. And we know about Jesus now because we saw this happen. No, they saw a miracle take place. They saw a miraculous thing and say, wow, he must be a god. He must be um, some some deity that they that they worshipped or that they you know, thought was out there that existed that maybe they didn't know about, but just some deity. The point is, is that these these miracles that take place, apart from scripture interpreting them, don't have any real persuasive value or any meaning. Um, if you don't believe Moses and the prophets, you won't believe, even if you see a miracle. If you don't believe the Bible, you won't correctly interpret miracles. That's the point. If you don't believe the Bible, you will not correctly interpret miracles for what they are, what they do. Um, yes, does it leave you without excuse? Sure, everything leaves everybody without excuse. All of our experience in God's creation leaves us without excuse that we know that He exists. That's what Romans one tells us, including miracles. But miracles, in and of themselves, do not have all this information built into them that tell us that uh, whoever is performing them is from the one true God, the Trinity, or 
or that if Jesus rises from the dead, that proves that he is God or anything like that. By itself, they don't do that. You have to have the Bible. If you believe the Bible and you see these things, you can make sense of them and correctly interpret them. But if you don't believe the Bible, like these people who are just pagan natives here, they come to an incorrect conclusion that Paul is a god, when Paul, in fact, was not a god, right? They came to a false conclusion. I did a podcast, I guess, a couple weeks ago on Acts 14, remember? Same type of issue there. Um, Paul is doing miracles, and uh, Paul and Barnabas are out there doing miracles, and the, the Greeks think that they are Hermes and Zeus, Greek gods. They don't say, wow, we you know, believe in Jesus, and we believe the Trinity. They interpret it through their own worldview, their polytheistic worldview, that Paul and Barnabas were two Greek gods, right? We have a similar thing here where they think that Paul is a god of some sort. So you see the point, I hope. The point is, is that ultimately it comes down to worldviews, comes down to presuppositions. Um, it's a battle of competing worldviews because we interpret all evidences through our worldviews and our worldviews are made up of our presuppositions. So what you presuppose is going to dictate what you believe or how you interpret evidences um, which, you know, end up resulting in believing in something. So these people had a belief, for example, that Paul was a god because they presupposed that, you know, I guess people who look like men can be gods, and if somebody doesn't die when they get bit by a snake, that only means one thing, that uh, you're a god. That's, that was their presupposition. That's how they interpreted it, right? So... And same with the Greeks, they presupposed the Greeks, Greek gods, and when they saw miracles taking place by Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14, they said, well, it must be uh, that these men are gods, that these are the gods come down to us. Um, not true God, you know, not the Trinity, not the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but instead Zeus and Hermes. So it all comes back to the presuppositions. Um, so the point is, in order to understand the world correctly, you have to presuppose the right things. In order to make sense of the world accurately, you have to presuppose a Christian worldview. Um, otherwise, you're reduced to foolishness. Now, I haven't expounded upon that today because that's not the purpose of this podcast, but I have talked about that in other podcasts. The transcendental argument from a presuppositional uh, standpoint. So, um, that being said, I hope this uh, podcast was helpful. Try to keep it a little bit shorter today. Uh, main point, main theme to sum up. Presuppositions dictate our beliefs. You have to have the right presuppositions in order to make sense of anything, including miracles, including the resurrection of Jesus or any other miracle. It all comes down to this. If you don't believe the Bible, you will not believe, you will not repent of your sins even if you see miracles. It all comes down to, ultimately, the Holy Spirit changing hearts and giving them the right presuppositions. But as an um, apologist, we ought to demonstrate to the unbeliever, hey, if you don't presuppose the Bible, you're reduced to foolishness, you're reduced to absurdity. So you must presuppose the Bible if you want to be rational, if you want to make sense out of anything and have any true knowledge of things. It all comes back to whether you can presuppose, whether you presuppose the Bible. If you don't, then you're reduced to absurdity. Your worldview doesn't make sense of anything. Again, I've spoken of that elsewhere, so I won't go into it now, but that's the main summary of the argument, and um, I'll go ahead and leave it with that. So, I hope this was helpful. I hope it gets you thinking about presuppositions, and I just gave a few examples in Scripture um, of 
you know, presuppositions dictating belief. There's others that we could look at, um, but this is these are a couple of, a, a few good examples here. Again, taking very seriously what Jesus said: if they do not believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone comes back from the dead. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and sign off. Thank you again so much for watching or listening. Um, if you have any questions or comments, please contact me via fullarmorministries.org. There's a contact page there. And uh, if you have any questions about anything that you um, have come across in your life or anything that I've said on podcasts, please let me know. And um, again, appreciate it. Appreciate uh, you listening thus far. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. God bless you.